I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere. You know, the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Rider Jam Podcast. We are just a few days after the Downtown Riders Jam Volume 2, which was a amazing success. We had nine authors, had our friends from Curbside Publishing come down, brave the freezing weather. Had another author from Illinois, one from St. Louis. Had about 50 people in the crowd. Had a TV station down there. It was really amazing. If you weren't at the event, you can go to thegeekypress.com. And check out the recap. We have images, the text write-up, and more importantly, we have videos of eight of the authors. The winner at the show was Ben Tanzer. He was voted, uh, one of the, the, the judges chose him as the winner, by a point. And um, I overruled that decision and declared it a tie between Ben and Angela Jackson-Brown, who was on our show before. When you go and watch their performances, you will see why. They were both amazing. All of our performers were really great. But those two just blew the doors off. Just amazing. Two very different stories and and ways of telling them. Uh, But all the feedback was wonderful for it. So go check that out now. Sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also check out uh, Volume 3, which will be coming in February. And the details will be released slowly. We'll probably ramp that up after Christmas because you all have things to do. But it's going to be a fundraiser with Indie Reads Books or for Indie Reads Books. 
Um, and it's a partnership that I'm doing with the women who run Indie Literary Pub Crawl. So our events, as the details unfold, loosely will be this. So there will be a truncated version of the jam, hopefully about five or six people for an hour at Indie Reads Books. And then we're going to do a small pub crawl. Uh, we're working out the details. We're going to try to make it a one-room pub crawl so that you won't be walking around through the cold. So the jam will be free. Uh, we'll have tickets for the pub crawl, and all of the proceeds will go to Indie Reads Books. So part of the reason that we started the jam was to help uh, build the literary community in, in, you know, in Indiana and throughout the Midwest, but also to raise money for Indie Reads Books, which is this amazing place. It's this center for literary activity in town. Um, and, and everybody, every city should have a place like this. And if you're ever coming through Indianapolis and you don't let me know, I'll be upset. But also, you should stop down to the bookstore and see what it's all about. So the great thing about the jam is that I get a chance to sit down and talk with all these different writers. And over the next few weeks, we'll be doing podcasts with many of them. But what's here's what's interesting. Here's what's fascinating. Here's why I love the jam. Because I get to sit down with writers who are very different than me and begin to draw these Venn diagrams of where we are the same. So today, I, the conversation is with Erica T. Worth, who wrote a book called Crazy Horse's Girlfriend. And Erica and I are similar in this way. We are both sort of um, external to the communities for which we are identified with. So she is... Um, I believe she's half American Indian. I think that's what she said. And, you know, she didn't grow up on a reservation, and she didn't, you know, she her life very much mirrors what we think like life is like in America. And her story is touches on those kinds of thematic themes about sort of being outside of your culture but not quite part of, this other larger culture. And of course, so far Appalachia is all about that, right? Like being able to identify being from Appalachia, but not from the Appalachia for which most people identify. I mean, I didn't grow up in the coal riding region, although that's what, you know, my family, even where my family settled down in Kentucky is not really that. It was salt and timber. It was not, um, it is not West Virginia, like which is what most people I think identify Appalachia with, West Virginia, coal mining and mountains, even though it's 13 states and 450 counties. And this is like one of the fundamental parts that I love about writing is that you can begin to draw these Venn diagrams of sameness in human culture and being able to understand that like Erica and I can have these discussions about what it means to live in America and what it means to be displaced from your own community and never quite part of this other community, even though we have, even though our perspectives and how we get there are very different and they are, they bring with them their own tensions and their things that, um, that she's experienced that, that simply are just outside of the realm of what I do. But the stories that we begin to tell and those, what she calls tensions are similar, right? You can begin to find these areas, um, Angela Jackson Brown who we just talked to a couple shows ago, she and I had the same kinds of conversations, even though if you go watch her performance and, and read her book, um, Drinking from a Bitter Cup, you, they are, the, the narratives are radically different, but these Venn diagrams of sameness um, become, I think, very apparent. 
And that's just one of the most energizing things about the jam. And, 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 and the thing that I love most about these conversations is even when I um, – because I would say that Eric I, – I don't know that she would identify the book as this, but the book um, reads a little bit like young adult literature. It seems – I mean, that's, that's where it sort of seems to um, circle around and – Certainly, I don't think that mine is going to be that way. That generally isn't the, the audience that I have in mind. But it doesn't make make a difference, right? Like, that's where the, the Venn diagrams of the themes are there. They're the same ideas. So I find that um, amazing. And then being able to delve into what that means, because I, I hate analyzing books. It's, I just don't like it. I don't like trying to figure out what the author was trying to say. I like reading it and saying, this is the story that I think that I saw. But being able to sort of delve into the nonfiction part of what led to the fiction story is also really interesting. You know, I, we talk, and, and it gets referenced all the time. David Foster Wallace said, the more you write, the less distinguishable fiction and nonfiction are. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that even fiction writers are bringing in even if it's the empathetic stuff that they have seen from other people, it comes from their lives. Uh, and it's sort of, it, it is a way to work out an idea or theme. Or not even, but not work out in the terms of solve it, but work out in terms of what does it mean? What would happen if? What is the logical conclusion to this thing? So writing isn't about answers all the time. I think most of the time it's not. I think most of the time it's about what the fuck does this mean? And that's a big tenor of the conversation that I had with Erica, who was wonderful. And uh, she's manic, and um, she's been on the road promoting this book and is like sort of everything that uh, you expect a writer to be. And we just – we had a lovely conversation in the back of Indy Reed's books, huddled in a corner. Um, you will occasionally hear people shopping, which as a writer makes me very happy because that means they were looking at books. So here's – my conversation with Erica Ewer. All right, so we've been talking here in the back of Indy Reads books, and you have had a day. Yes. It's been so. How long have you been on tour? How long have you been promoting the book for? Since mid-September, and so what I did was I drove. 15 hours from Macomb, Illinois, where I live and where my job is. Is that like the far west side of Illinois? Where is that? Oh, it's it's deep in the corn. Okay. It's south, It's four hours southwest of Chicago, like deep okay. in the children of the cornland. <laughs> and um, so I drove 15 hours home to Denver because for oh. three weeks I was going to go to New York to the Brooklyn Book Festival because, you know, because I, I was invited, you know. Yeah. And then I went um, to Seattle and then to Port. No, and then I, I don't even know. Denver and then New Mexico and then to Seattle and then to Portland. And then I drove 15 hours home. And I was teaching online during that time. And then, I, yeah, then I did the Texas Book Festival. So you've been doing like the festival. The yeah, festival I was lucky around. that the, they, they invited You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I felt really lucky. And so I went. And then I've just done like a million other dates, and I I barely had a weekend, and my cat is not pleased. Yeah. yeah, I just got back into town, and the first thing my cat did was pee on the dog leash because <laughs> I was hanging out with the dog. Like he was not. Yeah, they're vicious, and the, in yeah. terms of like they're like that sneaky like teenage. I'm not going to tell you I'm mad. 
Yeah. So you're from Denver? Yeah, from right outside of Denver. Um, is that where you grew up? Yeah, 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 exactly. I love it out there. It's yeah. totally beautiful. So um, how did you end up out here? Like, what was the trajectory? You know, um... Like, did you leave early? Some, no, no. I, I got a job. I mean, that's the only reason I'm in the yeah. Midwest. Really? Like, oh, yeah. I have nothing. So were you writing um, from the time you were a kid? No, nope. I was a reader. I had no. I wanted to be a writer, and I don't know why. Because um, I didn't know any writers. My dad read Louis L'Amour and The Martian Chronicles to me, though, <laughs> and my mom would be like, "Oh, Ron, she doesn't understand any of that." And then my dad would be like, "Erica, what happened?" I'd be like, "Zarbaganon just jumped onto Bardaganon." Like, I just really loved that stuff, and. Um, so, but then I guess that's what did it because at six or seven, I just decided I'm going to be a writer and which subsequently made both of my parents really furious. Um, what do they do? Uh, they, well, they both come from extremely working class backgrounds. My mom's mom, um, like, you know, had a fifth grade education and essentially what you call an arranged marriage. And she, but she encouraged my, my mom to go to college and, um, so my mom went from, like, her mom, fifth grade education, my mom, a four-year degree in English, and so or four-year degree in education. And then my mom actually just owned a little dance school is what she ended up doing. That's a long story there, but um, that's what she did until her retirement. And what did your dad do? He was an aerospace engineer, and he was from a really <laughs> similar background of, like, nothing. Like, he's from Staten Island. Yeah. Oh, he was from Staten Island, and he um, – you know, he shared a duplex with his cousins, and he was really smart. And so he got a scholarship to Brooklyn Tech, which often graduated, you know, mechanics. But he was just so smart that, you know, NASA's, He was an aerospace mechanic. Yeah. So, yeah, like, <laughs> he just did that of for NASA, space. like, you know, recruited him. Yeah. So he worked on the Hubble. But that's the thing. Like, I grew up um, with these sort of, like, major class leaps. And then I grew up in an area where it was mainly working class because I, like, I grew up outside of Denver in and in between two towns, one called Evergreen, one called Idaho Springs. Okay. And Evergreen slowly became, kind of became yuppie, but really not completely. I think people have a weird impression of it. And then Idaho Springs was rough, and that's where I was bused <laughs> to school. And most people working class, and then I, you know, my parents Wait, friends, so you lived on the border and you got bused to the bad part? Yeah, basically. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but Evergreen really... <laughs> I think people, like, it's funny because people now will be like, oh, Evergreen's so nice. And it is. But, like, I just went to get um, a coffee at the Starbucks in the grocery store. And the woman has, like, a major neck tat. Right. Like, and that's the Evergreen that I grew up with. Yeah. That I knew. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to school there. I didn't know it very well. But... You know, when I was there, it was not Yuppieville at all. So what did they want you to do? Did they, like, did anything that wasn't in the arts? <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, and see, that's get a, a business they, degree? Yeah, they kind of wanted me be, to be in the sciences because, well, they knew I was horrible at math. Mm -hmm. I was constantly tuned out. I had horrible grades all through high school, all through elementary school. Like in everything. Uh, English was higher. Yeah. English was higher, of course, but they were like, mm-mm, you know, because all I wanted to do was read. I wouldn't do my homework. I'd read. I'd read under the desk. Um, I'd read Walking in the Hallways. I just read and read and read. That's yeah. all I did. And um, so, but I had some propensity and interest in science. And what's ironic is I really like physics, but I have no ability in math. So that was not, you know, but the one thing I could do sort of was biology. So my parents were like, you could be a biologist. And I had no interest. Um, and so they kind of threatened to take me out of college. Which um, college? It's Fort Lewis College in Durango. And if mm -hmm. you're native and you have a, 
a bad grade point average, but you still want to go to college, that's where you go. But you get <laughs> end up lucky because it's a great college, you know. Um, but um, yeah, so that's where I went, and so. And you um, majored in biology. God no. No English. No, it took two what? seconds for me to switch, <laughs> and they threatened to take me out of college. And luckily, you know, they were just my dad was was a drinker, and my mom, you know had her own stuff to deal with. And so they kind of forgot that they had threatened to take me out of college. Was he an alcoholic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm a recovering alcoholic. Actually, from Appalachia, mm-hmm. uh, my family helped found um, the second poorest county in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Appalachia's so no joke. Right I'm now. familiar with some of those particular yeah. um, traits. So mm-hmm. this, this brings up a question that I always ask people because I'm all. it is not uncommon. I find more people who write fiction yeah. who have backgrounds of – like you just described, right? Yeah. Um, because it becomes a sort of, um, not even an escape, but like I need to rewrite things. I need yeah. them to have different endings, a control that you didn't have as a kid. Do you think that had any impact on fiction or were you to just gravitate to that? Or like you know, why not nonfiction? I, you know, I'm not, I think my daily life is boring enough that I don't think. <laughs> like it'd be like, I watched The Simpsons, then I ate peas. And I think there are writers that, think they find that interesting and I just don't um I think uh I think yeah I think my background was so mixed in every way you know my mom was kind of responsible my dad was not um I think tension is is the um the only thing that I personally think is makes you know a mark in terms of what's good fiction mm-hmm. and I think that in my life certainly there were lots of tension points you know my mom was native my dad was white um parts of their lives were what you might call little cl- middle class but so much of what they came from and because we didn't have a lot of money because my dad spent it on other things right. um you know, and because of where I went to school and the culture I was around, it was pretty working class. So I think people like to have narratives about, you know, people like, oh, you're Native American. Well, if you're Native, you must be from a reservation, and all Indians come from reservations. <laughs> and it's ironic because 70% of Native Americans live off reservations. Sure. I and mean, even reservations, there are reservations that are 70% non-Native. Right. And where I came from, you know, there were a lot. I grew up with a lot of other natives. Some of them kind of middle class. Some of them working class. Various tribes. Same with honestly, the white people I grew up with were the rough, the rough ones. They were the ones with the mullets. Yeah. You know. So I'm gonna talk about that later. Quite a long time. A mullet. Yeah. Well, if you're from yeah. Appalachia, that's yeah. required. I had the. I, it was shaved underneath around the sides, and I had hair that went down to my ass. Like it was. I have told people throughout the years. Had it, had I not been a baseball player from a baseball town on the best baseball team in the city, I would have never had a girlfriend. There yeah. was absolutely nothing about me that was appealing as a human right. being. Well, but did your mullet smell of cigarette smoke? That's really important. Uh, I'm, I think I smelled of cigarette smoke. Just in The mullet also. Yeah, like once I was like 17 is when the, the drinking and smoking really started kicking in. Um, you know, like I discovered. Oh, you started late. Yeah, oh. yeah. I, well, the drinking started at like 16, but the mm-hmm. smoking, I was a runner. And then I was like, ah, smoking's easier than running. Oh, like, yeah, it totally is. And I discovered um, the beat riders, and I was like, fuck. That's like, funny. I'm totally, like. This is way better. Like, Have I know, you watched Bad Writing? I haven't. What is that? That is the funniest movie I've ever seen. Really? Like, if you're a writer, you have to watch that because it's all about this guy who eventually goes and gets his MFA, and he interviews, like, George Saunders. Uh-huh. And, gosh, I'm trying to think of um, Like, all loads. the silly tropes that we do. 
Yeah, like he does that. He talks about like how he discovered him. He, I'm a poet at like right. you know some in his late teens. I want to say, yeah. and it was all about the beats. And he reads his old poems. And he has videos because yeah. he videoed himself. Yeah. And they're fucking hilarious. Yeah. But he's so wonderfully self-effacing, and actually the whole thing is really very enlightening and lovely. I, I love that. Yeah. That writing is one of my favorite. I've shown it to a couple of my. I will clearly be watching. Like, I have everything that I um. I, I've talked about this in every podcast. I have everything I've ever written from the time I was in like sixth grade in order, wow. um, archived with introductions to graduate students <laughs> that I was doing in like seventh grade. So like the because I never wanted to be. I, I write nonfiction, right? Yeah. And so I never wanted people to go, oh well, he wrote about the rose and that represents. I'm like, look, uh, this is what this, is what this means, right? Like, don't fucking be that person. That's what it says is what it is. That's great. Um, Joyce, I think, in a way, had his, the same. But, but like, who at, who at like, 12 yeah. begins cataloging their right. work for the greater good? Like, I had one plan, writer. Right. right. <laughs> it really yeah. wasn't like... No, it always turns out to be a hard plan, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seemed my, my dad decided that I, uh, I could get a teaching degree. Uh, because you know, that's just that's such a much more respected and right. money making. Right? Oh my god! Especially these days. Ugh. So uh, you graduate college. Oh yeah. And what year is that? Ninety-seven. Okay. And then what? What happens then? Well, well, what do you have the degree in? We didn't. It was English, so, but I wouldn't, and so I obviously defied them. But they, like creative they, writing, they literature. That was my problem. It was English, no workshops, because uh, I came from a ba- that was the problem. I came from a background where there were no writers. I wasn't encouraged. I was right. told very angrily I would do it on the side. I didn't even know what that meant right. or like, didn't mean. Right. What does the side yeah. mean? It's, yeah. That means you're not a writer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, and, you know, of course I had, a, I was positive that, you know, I would, I would write dragon books like the the kind that I had read. Yes. You know. Um, oh, yes. That was yeah. in your bio. You miss dragons sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember what I said. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was so, it was coherent. But, um. But yeah, like, you know, um, and so I'd had loads of jobs, like on the, like on the side yeah. of college and I wouldn't take credit writing workshops. And I think I was ultimately chicken. Yeah. Um, I was scared to, to say like, I'm a writer. I guess I didn't picture people like me being a writer. Right. There's no then, antecedent. There was yeah. no, my friends called me the professor when I was growing up cause I was always reading the book. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm on the baseball bus. We're driving to some game and I'm reading. Yeah. So that just became known as the professor, and I just thought, huh. I don't really know what that means. I mean, I knew what a professor was, yeah. but I People thought... People called me fucking weirdo. Yeah, right. Or... King Butt was my other nickname. Yeah, King, exactly. Because you know? <laughs> of my last name, because they were very creative. Yeah. And But no, I mean, I think that's the thing, is that I didn't... There was nothing... Nothing encouraging me, yeah. you know, at all. And <laughs> I should have taken... I should have taken workshops, but what I did eventually was I went to... I mean, I, I just... I didn't even know you could get things like doctorates and things like English or yeah. I didn't really know what an MFA was. I was not told. Um, oh, are you an MFA person? No, no, no I didn't do that. No. And so, but you know, but I actually wish I had, that would have been, I got, I did get into Montana at the end of my really? PhD, but I just didn't go because what I, well, I didn't understand, sorry, that's the TARDIS. Um, what I didn't understand was, 
Uh, is that your phone? Yeah. The phone is the TARDIS? Yeah. That's so my dad thing. was, of course, a geek, so he had us watch Doctor yeah. Who, and now Doctor Who is, like, cool again. I yeah. Even, my I wife know. thinks that Doctor Who started with David Tennant, and I'm like, no, no, Tom Baker. Oh, yeah. Tom, Tom Baker totally is. Tom Baker. Yeah. yeah, we are around the same yeah, age yeah. because, yeah, yeah, all that Tom yeah. Baker. Yeah, when he was in the – we went to see the 50th anniversary in the theater, oh. and I had to explain to her – Everybody's going to go apeshit in this moment, and it's because he's never been on TV since he left oh, as the doctor since he yeah. left the show. Yeah. Um, so she's like, "He's charming." I'm like, "No, no, he was the fucking doctor." Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I cried because that was almost like seeing my dad again. Yeah. My dad, you know, died of alcoholism like a long time ago, and you know, it was almost like seeing a lovely version of my dad again. Yeah. It really was, and so I just I. I yeah. just I loved him, and um, I've heard he's a douche in real life, and I just, you know, of course, right? Um, Tom Baker is, yeah, really, I'm so sad. Well, you know, when he got the job, he was um, he was a maintenance guy at the apartment complex he lived in because he didn't have a job. God. So he was like, he went from one day being the guy who takes care of stuff, and because he was like kind of Maybe a failed adorable. actor to the doctor, yeah, and he's oh. like. I never wanted to leave. Like, oh, he's the I'm only sure. doctor that never wanted to leave because he's like, oh, yeah. this is the best thing ever. So, yeah. Oh, and it, he was, I think he, he really, like, brought something to that. And, yeah, so, um, in any case, though, but, so yeah. So, you graduate, and what happens when you graduate? Do well, you go right for a master's? I did, but, I mean, I did working, like, manual labor jobs the whole way through. Yeah. I did, you know, even during grad school. Yeah. And I, I worked did, in the facilities department yeah, in grad school. Yeah, I mean, like, you know. Painting and planning yeah, trees. Yeah, so it's not like it's like, <laughs> oh, I was born. Born from two professors, yeah. then you know I know um, I um, someone told me about this masters in English thing, and I was like mm, in books. And I remember the feeling of sitting there on my like bed in my apartment, which had once it was part of like a trundle, and um, <laughs> and um, thinking like oh, I feel my like God, I need I to download do the TARDIS app now. Yeah, the oh, ringtone. So it's just so cool. Um, and then my ringtone is actually the old, yeah. you know, um, intro, you know, doo-hoo, yeah. which is so much so anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I was like, okay, and I didn't know what I was doing. So I like literally wrote, like, you know, it used to be writing. Yes. I mean, like 200 I, schools. I had no idea what I was doing. And then I decided I'm going to apply to a bunch of schools in Canada. And then for, I'm not sure why. And then I decided to apply to one in America, University of Toledo. And they let me in. I had no idea that it was totally the norm to give people a tuition waiver and a stipend. Yeah. So I got that. I go there, and suddenly Toledo. I, that's where you got your yeah. master's from. And I was, I mean, not in the West, not around any other natives. Yeah. And I suddenly realized how native I was. Yeah. Like I was like, oh my god. And Toledo is like it's a factory town. Like I'm from Ohio. Like that is that is a working Although class. It's kind of like a dead factory town. Totally. Now, you know. It was. I mean, so this is yeah. one of the parts problems with Northern Ohio is yeah. that many of the things. So you went from Denver. <laughs> to right. Well, the polar opposite. I, Fort, I was at Fort Lewis Durango, right? So okay. it was like it was kind of it was still small, but it was the West, and I never I never had to think that hard about being native. I remember yeah. vague feelings of like. Native that means stuff, you yeah. know, and like things about my background, words people used, and you know, different religions, different. But I never really thought that hard about it until I was right. thrown right in right. Toledo, Ohio, yeah. and so suddenly, and you found out what Christian privilege was, yeah, right? Just, like they I just know. like that's what they know, yeah. and your world is a different world in every way. And <laughs> you know, I um, suddenly I was writing poetry and short stories, and I was like, this is what I want to do. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm. You know, I don't want to, I'm not a critic. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? But I still was afraid to take workshops. So then when I what got What were you in, doing? What, what kind of classes were you taking? So it was a lit. So it was a lit. So you were really like a crit lit kind of. 
critical literature. Someone, like I didn't even know that's really what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And I remember there was a PhD candidate, and he was like, oh, here's a journal in Native American Lit, and here's here's like the kind of things you would write. And I just remember thinking, I don't, I didn't know this. I don't want to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a writer, and right. I, that's what I want to do. And so I just started working on manuscripts, and then I still wouldn't take workshops. And when I got into my PhD program at University of Colorado, uh-huh. so what I did... back to the West. Yeah, th- that was ultimately... Sure. Yeah, I was like, goodbye! And, yeah. um, my wife and I keep talking about, like, Colorado is, like, the best place ever. Actually, I mean, I love where I grew up, but yeah. I'd be in New Mexico if I had... Yeah, it's ho- where, which, where at? Albuquerque. Okay, so my parents go to Taos. Yeah. Like, I'm a big Taos, like... Because it's weird artist. It's like I used to live in Austin for ten years, like oh, yeah. long ago. And Taos is like that same sort of weird walk around yeah. with no shoes on, like right in the cafe. Yeah, I think Austin has a little more city. I like I like Austin a little better than Taos in the sense that it has like all the good city stuff, you know. Yeah, have you been there recently? Austin, yeah, it's way too big. I I was there like fifteen years ago when yeah. it was even like. There wasn't Boston tra- weird, yeah. Yeah, well, and there wasn't traffic on five or on uh, Mopac and thirty five, where it took thirty yeah. minutes to get everywhere. Like I, I like walking and hiking and going around. I like that part. I yeah. don't like traffic. I think every place needs to have like really strong public tan- transportation, and yeah. we just don't support that because. No. You know, but yeah, I um, socialism. So, it's yeah, socialist. I know. Lots of people on a thing at the same time. Oh yeah, no, I totally <laughs> like basically. You know, I if if I, I I can't even describe how commie like my views are, but like. Um, so you go back to Colorado for your peak. When when is this? Yeah. When do you go? Um, God, I was barely. I was like twenty. And so that was. So you're like barreling straight through, like undergraduate, master's, PhD. I would have never. Like I, you are I of that had, academic world. I, well, because I'd never, like I'd had to have working class jobs the whole way, and right. I got fired from almost all of them. <laughs> and middle class jobs were something I knew nothing about, nothing like, at all. I feel like we have a lot in common. Oh uh, yeah, if you're from <laughs> Appalachia, yes yeah. we do. Yeah. Um, and so you know, but that's when I was like, okay, I'm stupid. I need to take workshops, and I need to do a creative dissertation. And so that's what I did. I just took all workshops. And I took some outside workshops. For, this is for your PhD. Mm-hmm. So your PhD was a book. Essentially creative PhD. Yeah. Was it? At an institution that doesn't normally reward creative PhDs. We did, exactly, we yeah. did exactly the same thing, which is, uh, this is what I would like to do. Yeah. <laughs> Let's I think go. if you publish in the field and they yeah. have, you know, professors to work with you, I think they're usually fairly friendly. And so that was the thing. I was publishing in the field. They were hiring yeah. more and more creative writers. They had an right. MFA later. So... So they did it. But so your then, PhD is from Colorado mm-hmm. in English. Yeah, it's actually apparently all yeah, and all creative PhDs are still English technically. Yeah. So. So what yeah. what were you what did you publish a book a chat book? I was publishing at the time some poems, some short stories, and then I was putting together a poetry manuscript, which was published a couple years later by Western Press Indian Trains, and then I was putting together a short story manuscript, and I was I just started. Writing the first version of my novel, mm-hmm. which ended up being like a ten-year project, because it turns say, it out, like, came out right? writing is hard. Yeah. Writing a novel is hard. Yeah, at least for me. Yeah. So, so my writing partner lives in Berlin. He moved there uh, like nine years ago, and he's on his second book, for which he's like, I can't even send these out. Like yeah. he just keeps writing, writing, writing. Like he'll send them to yeah. me, put them in the drawer for six months, oh, pull them back out, like. Oh, this is terrible. Like, time yeah. to start cutting everything from the middle, and I got to fix all of this stuff. I just thought, you know, it's like, you know, there are people who do really innovative things with form, and that's cool. Yeah. But I'm not that guy. I yeah. just genuinely, I lead by character yeah. because you cannot make a plot happen if you just got a great idea. Right. You know, you have to see what your characters would actually do. But I found that when writing a novel, just for me anyway, 
I couldn't quite rely on that. I really had to think about structure. Yeah. And it was just like, I mean, honestly, I might as well have been like trying to fix a car without a manual right. and without any help. I just literally had to find out how to do it myself. And I kind of tend to work that way, not out of any stubbornness or yeah. tyrannical. I just genuinely don't get it unless I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. Well, also, there's the no antecedent, you know? right? Like, there's no, like, I didn't. When I left college, um, I, there wasn't anybody I could ask about how you get a writing career. Like, yeah. Oh, sure. I've told my students when they ask, I'm like, well, I got fucking drunk for 10 years and did a shitload of drugs. And everywhere I went, I met every editor. And then um, when I, I got into the Berkeley Graduate School, which is a good you know, program, right. um, I applied the last day. Yeah. I did all my shit in one day. Like drunk, fucked up, sent it in. was like, <laughs> it's the only graduate school I applied to. I'm like, so do that. <laughs> Obviously, this is the right one for you guys. Right. Like, do that, get in, and then, like, your career's fine. Yeah. Like, But, like, what do you do? I have no idea. Like, writing is a, like, you just sit that You either do it or you don't. Like, it's Yoda. Like, you either sit down to the page and wrestle with it, or you tell people you want to be a writer. I do think that some people have a natural ability with structure, though, because, like, if you look at Brett Easton Ellis' first book, Lesson Zero, he understood his weaknesses, he understood his strengths. And he could see it through. Like, he understood narrative arc. But if you grew up in an oral, like, I grew up in an oral storytelling culture, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Appalachians tell stories. So I couldn't tell you what X, Y, and Z. I've had to learn structure over the years. I should have, though. I read and read and read and read and read. You know, and people always talk about natives as oral culture people. Mm -hmm. But honestly, you know, if you look at 1492, there are parts of Europe that had written languages. And it's the same with America. I mean... Mayan and Aztec territories had, they had huge libraries, yeah. huge. There was written, you know, sure, sure. probably, but you know, I think. I but mean, it I, also depends. There's not like a monolithic, right? Like it's not like every Appalachian tells stories. I just happened to grow up around right. a family for which that was important. Oh yeah, we had, we definitely had that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so I have been told that I'm pr- like, I'm pretty good with story. Right, right. I have had to learn what structure means throughout my life. And when yeah. I try to do it. Fucking, it doesn't work. I have to just let it sort of organically happen because it's what I have been doing. And I think that that's endemic of working class. Maybe it is. Because maybe. you're not really well, fed that. Well, Brett Easton also, it's apparently, though, people think he's of the culture that he writes about. But I guess he, I don't think he comes from exactly what you might call working class. But yeah. I think he, um, I think he, um, I think he got some sort of like he was living, like his family was moved. Yeah. To an area that put him in that, mm-hmm. and that's why. So I think everybody, right, is always yeah. a little on the edge. Like you're talking sure. about, you know, what is it? What is it that makes a writer? Is there anything? And I think any kind of life filled with tensions. Yeah. But I think I sh- and honestly, I should have known because I mean, how many novels did I write, read? I just I don't I don't know why. But I were you thinking about them? So like when I read Fitzgerald the first time, I was like, actually Hawthorne, Hawthorne, I was fucking hooked. Yeah. Like the only like person in school that was like, can we read more than The Scarlet Letter? Like, I need more of him. And then I read Fitzgerald, and I was like, fuck, this is the same thing. Yeah. I would sit and copy, like, I would write The Great Gatsby by hand. Donald Ray Pollock did that, yeah. Just yeah. to feel what it was like. And so, mm. from the time I was young, I was thinking about, like, what were they doing? Yeah. And I think sometimes people just read to escape and yeah. enjoy. And so you wouldn't pick up that yeah. structure. I mean, I would have thought I would have picked it up instinctually, but I guess not, you know. I, I don't know, but I think if someone had tried, like, I'm that person who, like, if you try to teach a card game to me, I'm extremely 
like impervious. Like I just don't like let's get play. It. No, yeah, exactly. And it takes okay. me literally to the point where everyone's going insane, and yeah. that's why I hate playing. <laughs> you know, too. because I can't get the rules. Yeah. But then once I get them, then I then I do beat people yeah. because I just have to do it. I can't. I have to figure out my right. own rules. So you know, how people who like want to explain stuff to you, and I'm like. Um, don't bother. Yeah. Because I'm not going to get yeah. it. Well, know, I think so. you and I experienced some of that with the jam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm the same way. Like, well, if actually, you... they signed me up for so much that I was like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What okay. are these things? Yeah, oh, crap, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I hate playing games specifically for that reason. Oh. I'm, not, I'm like, and I want to, I don't want to learn in front of other people. I have this idea <laughs> yeah. of. Yeah, I don't like that either. Um, just coming from where I come from, uh. You have enough interactions with people that tr- I have an accent, clearly. Um, and you have enough people treat you, they expect a certain thing with an accent yeah. like this that I'm very careful about the perception of what I am. And so being vulnerable and appearing dumb, I fe- you have that sort of I'm representing. Yeah. Uh, and so I just don't like it. And I yeah, get like, I totally turn right. into a total asshole. You're totally right. Um, yeah. Unless I can go in the corner and learn it. And then I come out and I'm like, you're all fucking dead. Right. You know, like, <laughs> you're about to experience yeah. pain. You know, there's this amazing um, visual artist. He's a native guy named Brad Kalmeyer and my friend Sherwin Batsui. He's a Navajo poet. He's like, yo, you have to go meet Brad while you're at the Brooklyn Book Festival. I'm like, okay. So I take the train to Williamsburg and I meet Brad and I'm, Googling him and his work, and I'm like, oh, I've seen this before. It's very dark, really interesting. Um, lots of portraits of women that I really like, and then self-portraits. And he's very funny because, you know, he's he's been adopted out. Um, he's, it's a long story with a lot of natives. It was like a sort of new form of forced relocation where they would, you know, forcibly adopt these people out. They would be like, you're an unfit mother. And it was their way of also trying to get Jesus. natives out of, like, assimilate us, you know what I mean? And so Brad... You know, this is what happened to Brad, and I told him, you know, he didn't even know the phrase lost lost birds. We call them lost yeah, birds, yeah, yeah. you know? And so he kind of liked that. Um, but he was saying very something very funny. He goes, you know, uh, how did he put it exactly? Something about Native American personalities. You know, sometimes they're kind of uh, confrontational personalities or, you know, defensive personalities. And I kind of laughed because I thought, yeah, I think a lot of Natives, like my generation and back especially, you know, there's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's just like, I've got to beat everybody or they'll beat me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. And particularly when you sneak out. Yeah. You know, like when you sneak yes. out, you feel, um, I, don't think, I, I don't tell the story very often, but when I um, left to sort of pursue life, I had a little going away party. And one of my friends, as I was leaving, said, and like, they're all fine. Like, it's not like they disappear into the black hole or anything. But right. um, one of them said, like, you have yeah. to make it. Like, yeah. we, like we are clearly never going yeah. to leave here, oh, and like, yeah. um, it was a it was meant as supportive, but it was also sort totally. of one of those things that you do as a kid, and like, at, for fifteen years, I've told people, if you told me no, I didn't give a shit yeah. because I had to. So your no was going to get bashed out of the way, mm-hmm. um, because I got a whole bunch of people on my back. Right. Um, it took me a long time to sort of get older and be yeah. like, you know what, that doesn't. Yeah. Nobody gives a shit. Yeah. But you carry that. Yeah. Um, and oh, I think totally. that is endemic of, I think it's a class structure. I mean, I think like African-Americans and I think like people, minorities Ooh, feel that. But I think that also the class structure, if you sneak out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Does it? So I've read the book. Um, I'm not totally done. I'm almost done. 
Um, Kindle tells me I'm 15% away from being <laughs> done. Yeah. Uh, so as you're writing the book, do these thema- some of the thematic elements come out? Like this is not a hardcore it's not a hardcore book. It's not like no, beating no. over the head is a novel. No. But there are clearly some of the, I mean, like that struggle between the main character and the boy from California or whatever. Like, yeah. These are, the te- those tensions are sort of. Yeah. They're sort of class-based or culture-based yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I read it as class. Yeah. Um, very much sort of like the um, the the uh, pr- protagonist, uh, the, the woman, the girl in the book, is sort of. It has that Gatsby feel. She's like, oh, my God, like, you live here, and you're from this far-off place. And right. he seems very, like, well, this is just how it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is this is right. the way the world is. It, mm-hmm. And then you describe Toledo, and I'm like, oh. So those emotions come out, right? Like, you show up in Toledo, and it's a different world than what you even knew existed. Yeah. And that yeah. becomes sort of a shining beacon of, like, oh, shit, I can do these other things. Do you think those kinds of elements in your life, when you look back, do you see that tension that was in the novel as your life? You know, like Marguerite, but in a different way. Like, people keep talking about how... I just did that bullshit like the rose. Here's what the rose means. Oh, yeah. Oh, it doesn't matter. No, I mean, they're always good questions because I think you realize at a certain point a novel is a really long letter to yourself that you send to the world, you know? Really? Yeah, and you're just like, that's really odd. I can't believe I did that. Um, but, um, and so when it comes back to you, right, when people read the letter, you, you know, they're going to be like, well, this is what I got out of it. And you're yeah. like, well, it was, oh, come to think of it. But, um, but to me, I just read it as class. Like, this well, is a world of class. You know, for example, some, I think, um, well, there are certain things in the novel I think other natives would see sure. really clearly. Sure. Um, but I think you mean like Marguerite and Mike, her, like her sort of boyfriend. Yeah. I think it's class and it's culture because what's going on is that Marguerite is like working middle because if her mom's a school teacher and her dad's a mechanic, you know, she has it better than her friends who mm-hmm. is in a foster home or in a trailer, right? Sure. She's Which clearly is, on the way out. She mm-hmm. clearly has the opportunity to get out. Yeah. But I think it's hard because her actual model at home. Sure. Is so bad. Sure. And I think that's, you know, what's, what's difficult. And, and so, um, and then, you know, even, even the model is sort of denigrative. That's a word because, like you mentioned, you know, if you teach elementary school like the mom does in the in the novel, you're not particularly valued. You're not making a lot of money. You're overworked. <laughs> you know, and, and Marguerite's mom is, you know, also trying to deal with the dad who's, you know, a mechanic and, you know, he's not, kind of not showing up. And um, I mean, very clearly, these are thematic elements that you're working out on the page. Mm-hmm. That's and, what I mean. Like, it, this is a... It's not the story of your life, but it's the sort of the big thematic thing. Maybe it's the story of your life, but it's the thematic stuff that sort of swirls around as you... Well, this is what I tell my students. Like, I would not know how to write a novel about France. Because except for what I see on Facebook, I don't know what's going on truly in France. Those are not the images that I grew up with. But like I said, I would never write autobiographically because it would be, like, extremely boring. Um, so I kind of try, try to write like in a, a 500 mile radius yeah. around myself. And I also don't like, I really, I really strongly as a native writer, like I was so not interested in being not from a reservation and writing about one. Yeah. And I didn't like, sure. you know what I mean? Like I just don't. I lived so. on the outside of Appalachia and I'm writing a memoir about Appalachia, but it's very clearly not an Appalachian book. Yeah. Cause I that's mean, as bad. It's actually worse. Yeah. Cause I know better. 
Yeah, I guess, I guess that's the thing. A lot of Native writers, like, you know, ever, look, Natives have a complicated relationship. Like, for example, my family went through Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, there really aren't any reservations except for one, the Osage. The rest of it is allotments in Indian territories. So none of my family ever came from a reservation right. because there aren't really any in Oklahoma. Right. Um, but if you go to Oklahoma, there are many, many, many places in that state that are very Native. Uh, you know, so is where I grew up. So is Denver. Okay. And so I think that's the thing. Um, I think for my character, culturally – you know, and class-wise, she is removed from a character who probably yearns for an identity because his parents have tried to give him one that not only does he find icky and inauthentic as a smart guy, but they've also kind of just tried to pretend he's white. And even though race, quote-unquote, doesn't matter, it is a part of it, (laughs) isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, people, you know, a lot of of what's going on, you know, discussions in Indian country today, and I agree with them, is that when it comes to involvement with your tribe in a variety of ways, you know, language should should count first or involvement. Or if you're in the city, you know, you should have, you know, these different – like it doesn't matter res or, or city. You should have, a, you know, language, culture, you know, um, religious involvement mm-hmm. with your – A room of one's own. Yeah. <laughs> and you should have these things. But, you know, but that race, like, shouldn't be a part of really? that, of any of that. And then people, on the other hand, are like, oh, I don't speak my language. I'm I'm not this. I don't do anything. But, you know, I'm 100%, you know, I'm Indian on both sides, let's put it. And I'm like, you know, they're all factors. Yeah. They're all factors yeah. because, you know, you really, like, they're just finding out that, um, right, there's this RNA protein recombination that can be recombined much quicker than they thought. So, in other words, like, your grandmother's traumas are things you inherit. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the way... I mean, certain things like my super greasy skin, even in the middle of like 30 degree, <laughs> like that is a native thing. I can't, like, I can't get away from it. I yeah. have 16 year old boy skin for the rest of my life, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, um, and you know, it goes deeper than that. But I think, um, yeah, so I think that's a thing for, for Mike. You know, he knows he's Native American, and I consider him Native American, yeah. you know, um, but I think he just doesn't know how to deal with it because his parents don't. Yeah. It's one of the things that – so I, I do nonfiction, and um, part of the reason I did it is because I am an alcoholic, and so my life was fiction, right? Like my whole life yeah, was yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. And so I gravitated to it. I've always told people it's the one thing that I never fucking lied about. Pretty much everything else that I might have told you right. um, at the time <laughs> that I was drinking uh, was because I needed, wanted, or you know, was trying to get something, like one of those three totally. things. Possibly the truth intersected. But it would have been sort of a happy accident, not a definitive thing. Um, and so I'm always interested in that. Um, another one of the writers who's at this one who I talked to, um, Angela Jackson Brown, her story is fiction, but it's very much about things that happened in her life. But again, it's not a narrative of her life. It is yeah. sort of here are events and me trying to process through what that means and understanding that there, there's not a meaning. It's a, right. there's, I'm just trying to process it. At the yeah. end of the day... The novel is about processing, not about here's the answer to race and culture and whatever. Like, because there's not. But for me, here's what has come out the meat grinder on the other end. Um, so I'm always fascinated because as the memoir, I don't really have that. I like it is um, the story is the story. I don't get to say like, oh, by the way, my family weren't, you know, right? Shitty sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. You know, I was just talking about this today at um, at Ball State. Like, basically, I just think, um, I don't know. I, a student asked me if I, like, 
do I write about, like, consciously about race or class or whatever? And ultimately I said, look, you know, that whole write what you know thing is ultimately true in the sense that um, you can imagine a lot and you should. Right. But I think, like, you know, Salinger was writing about his tribe. Right. Harvard was writing about his right. tribe. You know, and if you do it right and organically, you know, I think that um, – you know, you, you do write about the things that yeah. informed your life, you know. But I guess uh, the point that I always – that I think is true, I don't do fiction, but I think is true, which is that you can't sit down to write about race or class. You can do it as an, an essay. I, you, yeah. Right. You can do it as an idea, yeah. but there's not like an answer. You can't say like right. I'm going to process through this part of – my right. racial identity like that's right. not how the world works right because yeah. it sort of changes if you're when i'm in appalachia i feel relaxed in a yeah. way that i don't in the world i'm not yeah. on guard and so if i wrote about being appalachian in those different places i, I have different emotional feelings about the exact same thing within me which obviously appalachia yeah, is not a race totally. but it's an identity of oh yeah culture oh absolutely um and so that's what i think is fascinating about um fiction authors is that I think it teaches you to be empathetic. I mean, all authors, right? Like all writers. You yeah. have to be empathetic to understand. Um, I've heard in particular fiction does develop empathy. I don't know why. I don't know why fiction in particular, like I read some article that mm -hmm. that in particular helps the audience develop empathy. I, would I, mean, have, I can't tell the difference between nonfiction and fiction if it's done right. David Foster Wallace, is, I tell my magazine kids, David Foster Wallace, very... Um, famously said, once you become a writer, yeah. fiction and nonfiction are indistinguishable because all nonfiction is is my interpretation of an event, which we know is right. not actually what happened. Yeah, which exactly. is we just have labeled it. Well, yeah. I saw it. Well, ask a cop. What's the least likely way to put right. something together? Totally. Ask some asshole what they saw. Totally. <laughs> right? yeah. Oh yeah. But somehow we have um, uh, uh, sort of privileged that as like, oh well, I saw it, so. Right, you know, I recorded it, so it, that's the meaning. Yeah, I mean, fiction and nonfiction is like this relatively new construct, and I think you know, if you look at people like Hawthorne or Twain, I love the way or Melville they would try to convince you it was the truth because that is their job. Yeah, the only job is convince the audience it's the truth. Right, and I of course think, Twain um, was fired from newspaper jobs. What's that? Twain was fired from his newspaper jobs yeah. because he was like, yeah, this, that right. wasn't interesting. So this yeah. is what I wrote. But at the time, you see what I mean? Like that, you know, when you're writing a story, you know, that is just your job. Convince people it's the truth. And then I think what's going on, right, is we have a more sophisticated audience, you know, as time goes by. And academia is a thing that says let's make distinctions. Right, because you have to. Yeah. then there's two jobs and not one job. Yeah, although you know what I've noticed, the nonfiction thing is kind of going away in the wake of the YA thing. And in fact, now... What do you mean? What do you mean? Um, I've noticed, like, departments are no longer hot to hire nonfiction people, but they're more hot to write to hire um, screenplay writers. In English. Or yeah. In, like, the English creative well, writing creative departments. Writing. Yeah, because yeah, I guess screenplay is now the new thing. Because I think that's what's happening is that with all of these things, like with James Frey, the audience is right. realizing, like, oh... I guess none of it's true. Right. Forget it. Well, like David Sedaris is, his stuff is not true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's right. Uh, it, right. It, it, he said as much. So mm -hmm. I'm all, my m memoir is called An American Mythology. Yeah. Very specifically because I'm like, look, this is. Right. We have uh, 300 years of special collections about my family scattered around the country, and I'm like, these are. 
at the very least, these are interpretations by the people who were important enough to have special collections made about them. Right. So there's going to be very little in there that's like, oh, by the way. Right. Like, here's the point where they were dirty shit bags. You know what you should do? You, I highly recommend <laughs> getting the police reports on your ancestors. Mine were fascinating. Well, fortunately for a hundred, my family was involved in the bloodiest feud in Appalachian history, oh, and we lost. So Aww. for 80 years, there's documentation <laughs> of the hundreds of people that were murdered. That blows my mind, that stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is actually, the book is not about that. It is about... Um, how Appalachia helps us uh, understand America because yeah, it is sure. sort of like this poor white right. area yeah. for which all kinds of things happen and right, still happen right. and emanate out across the country um, and understanding the reasons, the pressures that have created those things, yeah. right? So instead of saying, why would they do X? Right. The memoir is, here is why X developed. Right, right. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. it's... That's a much more interesting question. I think so. Yeah. Like, whenever people say... I am I happen to be sort of moderately Democratic, uh, but when people say, like, I don't understand why they vote against their interest. Right. I always say, like, no, no, they're voting against your interest. Yeah. And yeah. so you don't understand that. So let's right. take a moment to understand why they might do that. Because there's actually 200 years of history that will explain... Natives will do the same thing. Sure. And, and although it's interesting, I've noticed, except for... In Oklahoma, Texas, and Kansas, the last elections, even a lot of natives in like South Dakota, New Mexico, which is still God and guns, right? Yeah. You know, they were like, "Oh, wait a minute, this is a brown guy. Okay, calm down. We got to vote for this guy." Right. And you know, um, okay, maybe he'll let us keep our guns. Right. You know, and um, but no, <laughs> natives in Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, still. Often, I found more conservative. Yeah. So, but there, but there are historical reasons. There are historical reasons, right? Like, and yeah. and I always tell you know I lived in Berkeley and Austin and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I lived in like the bastions, yeah, right? Like, totally. and I tell them like this is not a failure of their part. It's a failure. Whenever you say I don't totally. understand, yeah. the, the impetus can't be on them to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, and so when I read, this is why when I read fictions. Um, uh, I'm, that's sort of and how I process things is like trying to figure out like, okay, like what, not what was the story of the author, but what are the tensions, right? Like what are the yeah. things that are the focal point? Because then even if it's about um, American Indians or African American or whatever, it doesn't make a difference. The tensions are the same for right. every group of people. Right. Um, so uh, we've gone about 45 minutes and, and I have, this is my last question. It is the... Um, Actor studio question. Sure. Uh, and it's an it's an unanswerable question. It's a Kobayashi Maru, <laughs> um, which is. Can get some coffee. There is this uh, the debate about tags on stories, right? Like women's fiction, science fiction. Mine's going to be put in Southern culture, and I'm always interested to hear what you how, what how do you feel about the ways in which we tag and structure in books? Do they bother you? Do you care? Like, what's your well, book classified as? I, What's the tag? Whenever people ask me, you know, this kind of thing, like, I always go to, um, have you read Langston Hughes, The Negro and the Racial Mountain? No. It's... Sounds like I need to. It's so... I mean, it's on the internet. It's super short. And basically, he's like, you know, and this is 80 years ago, and he essentially says, like, you know, a young, you know, black poet said, you know, I just want to be a poet. Um, I don't want to be anything else. And he's that. And he's like, he sort of breaks it down. He's like, that is to say... 
you know, I don't want to be, you know, a black poet. That is to say, I don't want to be black. And he was like, look, you know, at the end of the essay, he's sort of like, we are beautiful. We are ugly too. And if, you know, uh, what we are, what we write about white people don't like, that's okay. If what we write about, you know, black people don't like, it doesn't matter either. You know, we are free within ourselves, you know, and I think that's the whole thing for me is that, you know, um, you know, I can only write what I know. And there are labels that I'm mainly comfortable with. You know, I am Native American. I am a woman. I am a feminist. Um, I, they don't really, I think it's more when people are afraid of labels, they're afraid of how other people are going to react to them. Yeah. But I think you have to be sort of like at home with any label and know that it's complicated. Like any word, every single word in our language is fraught with inadequacies. So. I refer to them as butter knives. Yeah. Like they're really yeah. bad at cutting anything. Exactly. So the, I guess the issue, the, so what I tell my students is I hate them because if I, like, I can't define to you what women's literature is. Mm-hmm. I, 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 can't, I don't any more than I can define what men's literature. I can tell you what like literature is. I can tell you what the story is. And so just on that, we just briefly touched on empathy. Like if I can read um, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend and find the tension, right, and like understand the tension. So it being sequestered off in a tag, like we're sitting back in the back of a bookstore where I see young adult, whatever, like I don't need that kind of structure for me because I want to just sort of find like, oh, I'd rather than be laid by tension. Like this is class. This is the tensions are this. Um, but they're great for selling books, right? Because the first thing you have to do is find your audience. Well, even class is still a label. You know what sure. I mean? And like you could say there are a billion gradations. Yeah. You know, I mean. I would prefer no tags. I think, you know, when it comes down, but again, I guess I'm just going to, I guess I have to go back to just the idea that like every single word is inadequate. And, you know, for Native people who are like, I will say, um, it's not my job to speak for all Natives at all. And I don't think it. You know, any more than it would be for Salinger's job, I guess, sure. for all Catholics or Jews. But at the same time, Native people are so deeply erased and so deeply um, questioned constantly mm-hmm. at every level about their identities yeah. when they're out into the world. And, you know, we, you know, if we're, if we're, if we look like me, we're Italian. Yeah. If you're darker, you're Mexican. And what's ironic is the Mexican people are just Indians who eat salsa right. for the most part. And so we're just so erased. And then, you know, if there's any sort of assertion, which usually comes about because someone says, what are you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I will say, well, I'm Native American and I'm white. Oh, well, you know, I have this picture in my head about what Native yeah. means. And it doesn't help that, like, literally, for example, when the mascot issue comes up, every single white person I know, just like on The Daily Show, because that happened to me yesterday, was like, oh, well, I'm a little bit Cherokee. That's nice. You know, I'm a little bit black, but if I showed up to the Black Student Association when I was an undergrad, <laughs> people would be like, why is this Mexican here? You know? So it's, I think that's a problem I wish I was here. surprised that people were like, I'm a little bit Cherokee. Yeah, I just, it really blows my mind. <laughs> and they're like, well, don't, I find it honoring. And I'm like, I don't find that. <laughs> that I'm sorry. Because no one goes around. And literally, like, I've started to keep my hair up because after reading. Is that really a conversation that's happened? Like, reading started, like, people touch my hair a lot. And pe- after readings, people like my reading. So they'll just start touching my hair. Really? Like, yeah. So I honestly, it's 
in part because, and I thought like when Sherman and Alexi would tour around, he would say that. I promise that. you there will be no, no yeah, hair, hair touching. touching. Well, that's, yeah. it's up. So, yeah. you know, even if it wasn't, be, even you know, if it wasn't, right. you can wear your hair however yeah. you would like. Thanks. I'm no, but I, I always thought like he was kidding that, you know, cause I kind of had encountered that, but again, I grew up kind of around a lot of other natives that right. had my hair, but no, people really do touch your freaking right. hair. So um, for you, the tags are, for the labels are, um, about giving identity to, 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 to um, literature and things that haven't had identity. Like the canon is very clearly bunches of like old white dudes. And so right. these labels Half give. Half of them were probably gay, but. I'm sure, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, making sure that like, not buckets are filled, but like things are identified as there are other things other than this sort of canon that you know. I think it would be less troublesome if people would be like, oh, okay, Native American, I'm open to what that means. Yeah. I think then labels wouldn't be so, like, itchy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I live so that a, would be the ideal. I live in a utopian world where I just want to walk into a bookstore and, like, like I can almost even be okay with, like, science fiction because I don't want to fucking pick up science fiction and have it be fantasy, right? Like, I I don't want a dragon. Right. I want a spaceship that actually operates on, days. like, yeah. exact. But I'm other more than, spaceship and dragon these days. Yeah. yeah. But Except like, for Lev Grossman. I love Lev Grossman, so. I don't even know who that is. Oh, my God. I got to interview must be fantasy. him in New York. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's literary fantasy, though. Oh. And he did a book called The So Magicians. that's a double tag. Yeah, but it's so, like, for me, it's like, what? Because, like, that was the two things, like, the thing I loved as a kid and the thing I loved as an adult. Yeah, so, so that made you miss dragons again. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, thank you for sitting down and talking to me before our reading tonight. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to hearing what you do. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that was it. That was my conversation with Erica. She's a lot of fun. She was exhausted. She was traveling all through central Indiana today. Lost car problems, all kinds of stuff. Um, so we were happy that she made it down um, and happy that she presented at the Downtown Riders Jam. Her book, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, is available online through curbside publishing, lots of formats, print, ebook, go buy it. Visit Curbside Publishing, Curbside uh, Splendor Publishing, sorry, Curbside Splendor Publishing, out of Chicago. It's where many of the Downtown Writers Jam Volume 2 authors are. You can also check out the recap of the event at thegeekypress.com. You'll see in the Downtown Writers Jam section, there are recaps for all of our shows. You can see the videos there. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can check out Volume 3 coming in February. Otherwise, I'll see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.